poet and novelist Anna Smale has published her second novel, Bird Life. It's set in Tokyo, where a New Zealand teacher of English, mourning the death of her brother, becomes friends with a Japanese woman who believes that she can understand what animals say and whose adult son has suddenly left home. It's Anna Smale's second novel, her first, The Chimes. Her debut was a Booker Prize longlister in 2015. And she's with me now. Good morning, Morena. Kia ora. Good morning, Kim. Um, I've given the bare bones of the plot, but that it doesn't explain how weird this <laughs> book is. Yes, I think it's definitely... You know, when I was writing it, I was really trying to capture, I think, some of the strangeness of both that time of your life, you know, that time when you're sort of leaving home or individuating. Diner is uh, 20s. 20s, yeah, yeah, yeah. And probably a late bloomer, I'd say, because for various reasons, she's sort of lived in the sway of her brother's sort of more dominant imagination. And genius. And genius, absolutely. And they're twins, which, you know, which is this sort of... A kind of a, an intricate relationship. Do you know about twins? I, I don't know that much about twins, to be perfectly honest. Um, we have a, a, a twins in our family, but not in my immediate family. Um, and it's, you know, it's. I didn't want to lean too heavily into that idea as well, because I think it's one of those cultural phenomenon or tropes that, that people sort of romanticise without maybe kind of having that personal experience. Sure. Um, but for me, the real... Uh, sway, I suppose, of that relationship was just the intimacy, the fact that they'd grown up in tandem and that they were in some intricate fashion and sort of mentally and emotionally connected. So she feels as if something has been amputated. Absolutely, and that's, a, that's a, an image that sort of returns in the book, that sense of amputation and how do you create a reality when so much of your reality has been shaped by that person but also by that narrative that they have used because as you'll see in the novel it's um you know michael has this genius and this gift but he also creates story for both of them and so he's he's created these sort of very seductive narratives in which dinah has lived so having that sort of separation is very much it feels like something has been stripped or something has been removed and she's sort of navigating a reality without that extra, without that limb, I suppose. So it's drained the world of colour for her. Here's a lovely piece where the other woman, Yasuko, is Mm. that how you say it, Yasuko? Yasuko is, it's actually very like Māori in that the the syllables are evenly distributed. Um, She's she's looking at Dinah, she's Mm. watching her, and she says, the world has offered itself to the girl as it does to everyone. Here is tempura, here is silk, here are tree geckos and fireworks and paper fans. Here is, mm, you John Daisaki. Well done. <laughs> here are the Bach cello suites, here's Alexander McQueen, here's the Icelandic language, here is Tadao Ando and Antoni Gaudi, offered this richness... The girl had chosen instead a small room in an empty apartment block in a foreign city, a six-pack of aloe yoghurt, a bowl of instant ramen, 
and a too high tall boy. She'd chosen sleeplessness in the park and grief. Mm, yeah. And that's how we see Dinah. She's lost. Absolutely. In a grey world. Yeah, it's entirely colourless for her. And, you know, it's exacerbated and sort of shifted sideways by the experience of being in a completely new country um, in which, you know, she doesn't fully understand many of the sort of sensory experiences that Yasuko is talking about there. Um, but, you know, I, I do feel that that is also a sort of self-inflicted, you know, I think Yasuko's on the money when she says that, that, that in some way Dinah's punishing herself. And that is sort of because partly the narrative. Because she feels guilt. Yeah. She feels guilt. And it's partly survivor's guilt in the sense that, you know, her brother has died and she has survived. Um, but I think it's also because she chose to you know, in some way abstract herself or remove herself from the sway of her brother even prior to his death and sees that as in some way a catalyst. Yeah, right. absolutely. So let's talk about Yasko, mm. who has her own grief yes. or guilt. Yes, yeah. She has, she's mentally ill. I wanted to create a novel where both readings were possible. All I right. think this is really, this is something that's always fascinated me about what we, you know, this this spectrum of of mental wellness that we sort of exist upon, um, and what we say is, you know, the consensus reality where everybody, you know, that's sanity or that is health. Um, I think that that shifts. It shifts for every individual, obviously, throughout their life, but also as cultures, I think we we shift our understanding of what sanity looks like or what mental illness looks like. Um, and I've been, you know, this is a novel about narrative I think in many ways it's about, I was inclined to believe yeah. that her son yes who his description of her yeah is that for periods of his life mm. she has been absent because she had to go to bed for a long 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 time yeah because she wasn't up to the world absolutely and That's, that is very much I think you know and I wanted to build that honor that sort of reality his reality as much as I wanted to show and colour in Yasko's, ex, you know, extraordinary reality, which is, it is potentially mental illness, but it, maybe it's a kind of gift also. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I didn't want to draw a sort of a hard binary between those those two experiences of mm. the world, because I think a lot of what we call sort of consensus reality or sort of accepted reality is all about that sort of pragmatic blending of what two different people or more experience. So, but yes, I think... The reading there is, is available, and I wanted it to be available, that Yasko is clinically uh, mentally ill. I just want to go back to The Chimes, your debut novel, mm. um, which was a kind of a wildly invented medieval <laughs> fantasy, mm. um, in which Simon hears everything in music. Yeah. I loved The Chimes. It was on the Booker Long List, deservedly so. Um, it shares certain areas of interest with bird life, yeah. um, memories, for example, but in terms of style, hmm. radically different. Yeah. Would you think? No, uh, no, I do agree. I mean, I think they're very different novels. Even though I think you're right that some of the obsessions or sort of areas of fascination are the same. You know, that that idea of music, sort of current running through it. Um, yeah, I think I, I wanted to do something different and I wanted to set myself some different challenges. And I think, you know, The Chimes was an exceptionally fun book to write. It was a rollicking 
kind of book. It had its own sort of in, inner drive because I tapped into some very sort of elemental tropes like the you know the quest narrative. Um, and I thought, as I you know as I said, uh, that I was writing a young adult novel. And I think I think it really is a young adult novel. The Chimes it has a young adult protagonist. I think the sort of dystopian world in which it's set, and that sort of again that quest. Um, you know that was that was part of that that world very much in my sense, and I think here I wanted to do something more complex and write, um, I guess, more complex human and emotional relationships in a, in a sort of a recognisable reality as well. You know, a sort of a known, invisible world. Tokyo. To you, to me, because yeah. you've lived in Tokyo. Yeah, good point. It won't be won't, won't be recognisable necessarily to everyone, but I think there will be people. Overlaps. People from outside Japan have described Japan as the nearest thing to being off the planet <laughs> as they can get because yeah. it is so different. And mm. that, in a way, is the feeling I get from this book that it is a, a kind of science fiction book. Mm. Well, I wanted it to feel like a fan. I mean, it is, it is partly a fantasy novel. I wanted that sort of magical realism to be always available and possible within it. And you're right, I think some part of that is akin to the experience of travelling to Tokyo for me for the first time. I mean, it's a wonderfully complex experience because on one level, it's easy. You arrive there, things are beautifully efficient, the train systems, you can live in your bubble of safety, and that's another element I really wanted to capture, that sense of a kind of a wonderful benign quality to that city. I felt like you feel looked after. Well, I think you feel ignored to a certain extent or that you can simply exist, but it feels that you could, I don't know, walk forever and never be sort of stopped or checked. And I think this is particularly a sort of a vibe or a sort of a, um, a feeling around that being in the city in summer, which I think was such a novelty coming from Wellington, whereas, you know, doesn't necessarily have one. Um, to a space where, you know, the air temperature is, is, you know, just like going out into your own body temperature and it doesn't get cold. You could walk and walk in the evening and it feels like you're enclosed in a, a sort of a wonderful, under a ceiling of safety, I suppose. So there's an odd mix between that sort of very benign floating quality and I really wanted to capture that. But I think the danger also of of giving in to that or of not seeing the places where your reality Connects or, or so it's like a kind of frictionless place. Absolutely, yes. There's that quality, um, and I think exacerbated again by the sense of culture shock and by the lack of probably. I mean, it's an ahistorical novel, and it's. And I think Dinah's experience of coming into Tokyo is she doesn't have any of that history. She's landed sort of a medias res. She doesn't have a, a plot. Um, so all of that is part of that frictionless space, but. It's an illusion, I think. And I think part of the, the narrative of the novel is understanding the dangers of that illusion. You lived there for what, two years? Uh, yeah, roughly, 20 months. Teaching English? Yes, yes. You deliberately went to Tokyo because? Uh, well, I actually went because of my husband. Um, he, then partner, now husband. This is the writer, Carl, Carl Shuka, Shuka, yeah. That's right. He'd actually lived there before we met, um, and that was a formative experience for him and... His first novel, The Method Act, was the first published novel, um, really emerged out of that experience. And he was writing that novel when we first met on the Masters in um, Creative Writing in Victoria. Does he share your view of Tokyo? Uh, I'd say he has a very different different and distinct view, but there will definitely be overlaps. I think mm. we both noted 
that ex- sort of strange experience of being an expat there that you are in a bubble and that it's you it's are you also invisible to some extent? Yeah, I think so. And I was thinking about this in relation to Dinah, the, the protagonist in the novel, um, because it is also a ghost story. I should say it's it's about a haunting, and she's sort of haunted Michael by returns. yeah by the by the sort of presence of her brother and the memories of her brother. And I was thinking about it in terms of that experience of sort of walking streets and feeling like you're floating and safe. And in a way, you do yes, the sense that you all are the ghost, or that you all sort of the kind of the quiet figure moving through that space sometimes. When I was reading it, I was, I mean, this is, I don't know much about Haruki Murakami, mm-hmm. the Japanese novelist, but its style reminded me of him, mm. albeit him in translation, presumably. I don't know, does he write in English? Ah, uh, No, I believe he writes in Japanese, although I think some of his work... He sort of wrote in English and then it was translated back into Japanese just to capture that. I think we're talking about that that sort of effectless kind of style. It's a very sort of simplistic or yes. kind of yeah, yeah. And that was that was what led me to conclude that it was written in a Japanese style ah. on the basis of very little evidence. Yeah, no, I think that's interesting. Um, and I've read, you know, I read loved Haruki Murakami before I'd been to Tokyo and even, um, and I think. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. A flat, yes, style. Yes. This sounds Effectless. like it's a criticism, yeah. but it's no, no, a it was style. Very intentional, and I think it, you know, it, it was in some ways like an attempt to translate Dinah's grief. She, she is effectless. She has no effect because she is in a state of shock and in, in mourning. Um, but I think you're right. There's a kind of a, um, a sort of a flatness or a, an irony in Murakami that did probably infect the book, even if it was quite subconscious. But another Japanese writer I, I think was influenced possibly more so um, was Banana Yoshimoto, who I read um, as an undergraduate and just happened onto, I think I was in Canterbury where I was studying music and in the university library sort of, you know, somewhere on the within the um, university library and I must have been in the Japanese section, you know, for Japanese literature students. And, of course, they had novels in Japanese, but also the translations. And I literally picked it up at utter random, Banani Yoshimoto, and I think it was Kitchen. And it's a very comforting, comforting book. And I think I probably was quite looking for comfort at that point in my life. Um, and I think there's something about that, that, I guess I'd sort of call it a domestic voice, it's a kind of a quiet voice. It's not striving to, um, I don't know, it's not, it's modest. And I think that's also was part of the sort of tone that I was moving towards or hoping to capture. Yes. No, I get that, modest. Mm. I wondered whether you thought at any stage of putting a glossary in the back. For all the Japanese yeah, I food wonder. items yeah. and brand names. <laughs> yes, I did. I did wonder about that. And essentially, I think I was seeking to recreate a little bit of the days of Tokyo. You know, when you arrive there, you're just dropped into it. Yeah. And, and Dinah is dropped into it. And you pick up things actually remarkably quickly. And then it becomes your vocabulary. Um, so I wanted to recreate that, I suppose, that, that sort of intoxication and oddness and the weirdness. Because it's a, quite a weird book. I think. Did you learn to speak or read Japanese when you were there? Um, I didn't very well, I think is probably the short answer. I did strive to 
but probably not very successfully. I learned um, two of the scripts before I left. So I learned Hiragana and Katakana. Katakana is the one where all of the Romanized words are typically written. So it's quite useful for things like um, you know, food and such um, sort of amenities. Um, and I learned sort of some kanji, which is the, the Chinese script. Um, but, you know, my, my Japanese was really limited to, I think, what we'd call restaurant Japanese. I don't think I could have really sufficiently held a, a conversation. But, um, you know, the, the, the other thing about living in that world is that often it's sort of you can get by. You know, Japanese people learn English from a very early age. Um, and so I was living in an expat bubble, but also my Japanese colleagues could speak beautiful English. So yeah. in many ways, I wasn't forced to. <laughs> Somebody's texted me to say mm. reading Murakami is like reading a glass of cool, fresh water. Ah, what a lovely description. It Do sounds you like it could almost be a haiku. Um, <laughs> I think so. I think there's sometimes um, some disturbing elements at the bottom of the glass with Murakami, you know. <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, there's there's an often a sort of a sense of ripples or unease that I think is yeah, really yeah. intriguing. Or that's right. Mm. It's a, a sinister kind of calm sometimes, yes. isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Which is exactly the same as your book has. Yeah, I wanted to um to capture that, I suppose. I mean to me one of the most fascinating things that any work of art can do is when you've got two viable worlds or realities and they, they sort of overlap or kind of um, hinge together in an interesting way and it makes you doubt which is the, you know, which is actually superseding the other. Um, so this is something, I mean, I think I've always been drawn to in, for example, Janet Frame's work where she talks about those competing realities um, and she embodies those and we have to sort of watch the competition play out. And often the moments where one reality supersedes the other are violent moments. You know, somebody is somebody kills themselves or, you know, a Daphne, for example, and Alice Cry has a lobotomy. These moments where two realities clash and they sort of um, can't coexist. Mm. So I'm really interested in those moments of coexistence or failure to coexist. And that's really, I think, sort of the weirdness of the novel, that you've got Dinah's reality and Yasuko's reality and then an external world, but which is, which is real. Um, yeah, it's... it's that sort of cognitive dissonance or, or magical thinking, I think, is, is really interesting yep. to me. So you have Mind London, <laughs> where you did your PhD yes. in the Chines, mm -hmm. um, and also because you're a violinist, mm. you were able to incorporate your understanding of music there, and also music in bird life. Yes. You've now mined Tokyo. <laughs> Do you do you need to have direct experience of somewhere, do you think, to write a novel? Oh, I would think so, yes. I mean, I think both of those novels and I guess the relationships with the cities they're based in are so much sort of dependent on that sort of very sensory kind of impression that those cities made on me. So in both, I think I was really trying to capture, yeah, that sort of under-the-skin sense impression that, you, you know, that you have to gain through being there. Um, so, yes, I would say so. I think what's interesting as well is that um, it struck me that I haven't written a novel set in New Zealand yet. I mean, there are parts of bird life that are... Diana that is from Diana, New Zealand. She's from New Zealand, and yes. so her memories are obviously of a, of a New Zealand childhood. Mm. Um, I think it's also to do with uh, the that sort of 
I guess, intensity of, of thought and sort of subjectivity that one has pre-children. Um, so I think there's something about me mining those two experiences, which is sort of before I became a parent, um, that has that sort of that deep kind of impression, I suppose. Um, although I should probably say that in, when, since I've been talking and thinking more about this novel publicly, um, I think a huge amount of Tokyo made its way into the chimes as well. I mean, it's a London novel, but when I think of the idea of, you know, the homelessness, the people adrift in their amnesia and the blue tarpaulin, that's a Tokyo memory and yeah. very much the, the amnesia and the idea of amnesia um, and how it connects to a kind of a culture shock, I suppose, was directly from my experience in Tokyo. So, yeah, they're all a bit mixed up, I think. What about grief? Yeah, well, this novel is very much about grief. Um, and, you know, it's about different realities. And I think I was seeking to catch the, the magical thinking that comes, I think, from grief also. Um, the sort of psychosis that is, that is possible in those moments. Um, you mean you wishing so hard something hadn't happened that you almost make it not happen? Yes, yeah, there's a denial of that reality in order to cope. Um, yeah, I mean, I think Yasuko sums it up when she's talking about parenthood also and that that sense of that vulnerability as soon as you've had a child and they've emerged into the world and your sense, your f- fundamental sense of their mortality is sort of inescapable after that. Mm. And I, rem- I remember feeling that that feeling. I mean, it's not, it's not an autobiographical <laughs> rendition of grief because obviously I've, I've been lucky not to have experienced the grief that Dinah has. Um, but I do very vividly remember, you know, when, when a child is sort of inside, it's, it's protected and it's sort of in its own time. It's sort of a no time. And then suddenly it emerges into time. And it's, um, yeah, it's sort of an ineluctable process that can't be reversed. And I think the whole, you know, the novel is very much about mortality and coming to terms with, with that. Um, you know, and there's a, there's a sort of a denial of mortality that exists when she, when Dinah is, you know, when she's revisiting her memories and her and she's haunted. There's a sort of a stopped time, and I guess that's that's also that sort of hybrid strange time of Tokyo. That sense of that floating, untethered time, which is sort of yeah, it's it's not it's, it's not real, I suppose. Just as you know, that stopped time of grief is feels unreal. I wanted to ask you about a, a piece that I was very taken with because I'm. Mm relatively shallow <laughs> and it was this lovely description of um yasko takes diner to a beautiful shop mm. yasko's got a source of income yes absolutely private income and so she takes diner to this beautiful beautiful shop and she chooses a suit mm. um for diner to try on yasko knew that even as she stood there in bare feet even with a t-shirt beneath the jacket she had seen something that could not be unseen. She'd seen that she was changed and powerful. The suit had played its part in the magic, the seams, the length, the weight, the balance, the shoulders, where the button was placed and how it fell from her back, the colour that did something quite unexpected to her skin, the cut that made the garment a kind of armour. Hmm. Why? What are you thinking of when you're writing that? I mean, that was, I think, based on 
an experience I had in Tokyo of, I suppose, the transformative power of both shopping and clothes. So it's it's a very it's very um, a sort of a visceral experience, I suppose. Um, and I, you know, I think this was something I really realised when I came to Tokyo as a sort of a slightly puritanical twenty-year-old, uh, twenty-something-year-old. Um, you know, I'd always sort of dismissed shopping as something that, you know, was a bit beneath me and really, you know, I was, a, I was a bookish sort of person and I didn't need to think about such things. And, you know, when I was introduced to the remarkable scope of choice in Tokyo and the utter sort of veneration for that act of choosing and, and the wonder of it, I kind of fell in love with it, to be honest. And, um, and I think that was itself a transformation. It was realizing that that was it was not necessarily about the consumption. It was about the consideration. It was uh, about the act of choice. Another and sort of art form. Absolutely, <laughs> yes. Um, and, Very you know, good. And the power, a justification of shopping. <laughs> yes. All good. Lovely to talk to you, Anna. Thank you. Thank you, Kim. Anna Smale talking about her new novel, Bird Life.